may possess the answers that we seek, but he also asks the questions we need to hear. Let's get close enough to listen to his wisdom and also be ready with our answer when the Jesus question comes our way. Hi, Mountain. I got some questions for you. You ready? Hello, is this thing on? Are you ready or not? All right, here you go. Um, Let's start with this one. If I wrote a book on failure and it didn't sell at all, would that be a success? In synchronized swimming, if one of the swimmers drowns, do like the others drown automatically, or how does that work? These are good questions, aren't they? Yeah? Did Noah have woodpeckers on the ark? And if so, where do you put them? How about this one? If I took a piece of buttered toast, strapped it to the back of a cat, and threw it up in the air, like, what would happen? How would it land? Some of you are like, whatever. All right. I used to think Jesus was the guy who uh, had all the answers, but it turns out Jesus has lots of questions and much more important ones than the ones, the silly ones I just threw at you. And today we're going to talk about one of the questions that I believe is maybe the most important question Jesus ever asked. And I know it is probably the most important question you'll ever answer. When Jesus asks a question, he doesn't do it because he needs to know something. He asks a question because you need to know something. And the question itself gives you an opportunity to think about what you really do believe, who you really are, what you're building your life on, where you stand with things. And today's question will do that. Jesus is like a fisherman that just knows right where to cast, set that hook, and he reels us in. I hope you'll feel that. Jesus drawing you in with this question closer and closer till we all stand face-to-face with him today in the next few moments. Are you ready for that? He has a question for you as you stand before him. Are you ready? Here it is. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say I am. Jesus wants to know. I'm going to ask that we do something kind of bold and courageous and a little unconventional right now. Uh, Today is a special day uh, because, as you can see, at each of our campuses, we have these pools set up, and they're ready for anyone who wants to get baptized. Anyone. You, maybe. Anyone uh, can be baptized today. We've gone to the trouble of doing this because we think some are going to respond in that way. And uh, I'm going to ask, if you already know that you want to be baptized. I'm speaking to you right now. And I'm also speaking to the rest of us. I'm going to ask us to make a bold confession of faith. First, if you're ready to make this confession for the first time today, you have found the pearl of great price, the thing that is truly significant in life, putting Jesus first in your life, welcoming his forgiveness, following his grace, and welcoming him deeper into your life for now and all eternity. Way to go. 
And for the rest of us, I want you to uh, have an opportunity to echo and affirm your faith as well. Will you all rise to your feet? Let's say these words of confession, confession of our faith. Repeat them as you believe them. These are words that make the angels above rejoice in a chorus that echoes ours. It makes the demons below tremble. It makes the world of faith one around the name that is above all names. Say it as you believe it. Repeat after me. I believe. I believe. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the, Christ. The, son the, the Son of the living God. He is my Lord, is my Lord. And, my and my Savior. God bless you on that confession of your faith. Those who are going to be baptized today, God bless you in that. And those who don't know you are going to be baptized yet, may God move you in the direction he wants you to go. Let's have a seat. Where did those words come from? Did we make them up? Are they things that are sort of mountain-specific? No. They come right out of the pages of the Bible, and they are an answer to the question Jesus has for you, who do you say that I am? To find where that all took place, we've got to hurry and catch up with Jesus. He's on the move again, and this time he's up at Caesarea Philippi with some of his disciples. I've got a little map here to help us figure out where that is. Here's the map of the uh, uh, Holy Land, so to speak, in Jesus' day. Down here by the Dead Sea is Judea, where he was born in Jerusalem. Up at Bethlehem, where he was baptized in the River Jordan, where he was ba- uh, died there in Jerusalem. Up through Samaria, where he spent some time. And then Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, where we had a little storm last week, remember? and some of the towns where he spent so much of his time. And now he's on a field trip up here 25 miles to the north in an area called Caesarea Philippi at the base of Mount Hermon. And here it is that I think Jesus just wants to get his disciples away from all the distractions of everyday life to ask them this important question and help them figure out where they're really going with him. And sometimes God needs to do that. Maybe even today can be that moment for you. Whether you need to go to the beach or go to the woods or just get up early on Saturday, don't you think God sometimes wants to get you away from all the distractions so he can really just get your attention? Come with Jesus to Caesarea Philippi. He's got a question for you. And first he starts with this one. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When the disciples came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Son of Man, a title referring to Jesus himself, an Old Testament title that he often referred to himself as. Who do, what's the word on the street? Give me the majority report. Because everybody's got an opinion about Jesus, am I right? Everybody has got an opinion about Jesus. Jesus says, well, let's hear it. What do you think? And so they replied, verse 14, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some similarities that we see here. Some say Elijah, like maybe reincarnated, or Jeremiah, come back from the dead, or one of the other prophets. And at first glance, that's a pretty impressive list, pretty high company to keep. This is a flattering sort of who's who list of some of the greats in the Jewish faith. Like Jesus is a really good guy. He's way up there with some of these amazing personages. And there's some really nice things that a lot of people want to say about Jesus. But Jesus isn't looking for respect. He's not looking for credibility based on approval ratings. He's not looking to be included in good company. He's not interested in 
what you were told by your parents. He's not interested in what your Uncle Louie always said about Jesus. He's not interested in what TV portrays him as. He's not interested in what any other world religion might say about who he is, even if it's mostly flattering, mostly respectful, mostly pretty good stuff that's out there. Once in a while, someone will really slam Jesus, but most of the time, people are very respectful. He's in good company. It's not what Jesus is looking for. What he's looking for is the million-dollar answer to the million-dollar question, which is what he asks next. And he turns in verse 15, and after all of that sort of who do people say that I am discussion. You can talk about that all day long and none of that matters as much as this question matters. Jesus wants to know, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Because at the end of the day, none of the rest of it really matters. You stand before God one day and Jesus wants to make sure you know that's coming and so he asks you that question today. We all stand before him one day. He wants to make sure you know that, and so he asks you that question today. Who? Who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up, really for all of us, when he gives that answer. Verse 16, you're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the answer he's looking for from you. Now, let's think about where they are for a moment, and it'll help us appreciate what it means when we say those words. They're in Caesarea Philippi. This is a crazy place to say this. It's a statement that reminds us that to declare, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, my Lord and my Savior. This is a statement of loyalty to Jesus because Caesarea Philippi, Herod the Great was this awful king. He's the one who tried to kill all the babies when Jesus was born, right? He has sons, and he gives part of his kingdom in, to all of his sons. And one of his sons is Herod, uh, Herod Philip, or Philip the Tetrarch, and he's the one who named this area Caesarea Philippi. He named it after Caesar Augustus, the great emperor who demanded to be worshipped. There's the Caesarea part, Caesar. And then the other part he named after, well, himself. Philippi, we'll call it after me, because he, like emperors in those days, wanted to be worshipped. Caesar is Lord, they said. And failure to comply could sometimes cause you your life. And so here's, here's where Jesus is in that moment. Caesarea Philippi, the home of the emperor Philip the Tetrarch. He had a coin with his picture on it. He had just built a massive city, Caesarea Philippi, to make his name great and to make his name undisputed above all names. So everyone would say how awesome he was. And Jesus is there. He doesn't have a coin with his picture on it. He just said, if you've seen me, you've seen God. He didn't build a great city. He's building an eternal kingdom. And when the emperor said, who do you say that I am? If you didn't answer correctly for the emperor's liking, you would die. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And he says, if you get it right, you'll live. And you know in those days, if you didn't get it right with the emperor, you might be thrown to the lions. You might be skewered. You might be stretched on a rack. You might have scraping with pincers. You might have red-hot uh, red brass plates pressed to the tenderest parts of your body. Your eyes could be gouged out because Caesar was Lord, they said. And so Jesus is asking that question in that environment. Polycarp of Smyrna was dragged by a mob to the Roman magistrate, and they said, uh, take it back, recant, deny Jesus. You've confessed him. Take it back. And every time I hear his response, it practically moves me to tears. He said, 86 years I have served Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? 
And they tied him up and lit him on fire, and they stabbed him to make sure he was dead because not everyone's going to applaud your confession of faith in Jesus Christ. But he wants to know... Where's your loyalty? Is it above Caesar? Is it above even your love for country? Even above your, your love for family? Even above your love for your own life? Jesus says, don't take these words lightly. Who do you say that I am? He wants to know how much he means to you. And it's also remarkable in Caesarea Philippi. It's not just a statement of loyalty and political uh, clarity. It's a, it's a statement about Purity, because this was a hotbed of paganism. Caesarea Philippi was a place where all kinds of paganistic worship took place. Uh, the, the, it's, it's reputed to have been the birthplace of the god Pan, who was a, a big figure in that. Here's a, here's a picture of Pan, the god. He's kind of a goofy-looking dude. He's got like a hindquarters of a goat in Greek mythology, and he's, and he's got the horns of a goat. And he was this god of, of, of paganism, fertility, deity. Um, and, and he was not worshipped in temples. He was worshipped in caves outside. And if you, I've been to Caesarea Philippi and taken pictures there. You could go yourself. And if you do, you'll see Mount Hermon and a big side of rock and then a big cave in a grotto. looks like this. And you can just see right there, that's where they would have worshipped. And there was a, a sort of water coming out of there that, that feeds into the Jordan River. And that water, they believed, led to the underworld. It was the very gates of hell, they thought. And so worshippers would come in these paganistic festivals, and they would sacrifice their goats and throw it into the cave and worship to the god Pan and hope it would give them children and better crops and all this stuff. And with that looming in the background, Jesus stands before them. People are coming and going. All this weird stuff going on. They're not in the Bible Belt anymore. They're not down in Little Galilee anymore, where everyone sort of applauds Jesus and think he's awesome. Now when you're standing on your own two feet in a place where no one gives a rip about Jesus Christ, now who do you say that I am? Not when all the crowd is applauding and patting you on the back for saying you love Jesus. That's where they are. Jesus wants to know who do you say that I am, even if nobody else says it. Is he the God above all God's for you. And Peter's answer is that he is the Christ. The Christ. It's just the Hebrew word. Messiah. Christ. Means the anointed one. The one that God had said will fulfill all of your aches and longings for hope and shalom and peace and fulfillment. One is coming, God said. He's coming. He's coming. The Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one is coming. He's coming. He's coming. The Old Testament prophets told what he would do and what he would say. And Jesus shows up and he does all this stuff and he says all this stuff. And then he asks Peter, who do you say that I am? And and he says, you're the Christ. You, you're the one, the fulfillment of all of our deepest longings. And Jesus says, bingo. My translation. Verse 17. Jesus replied, you're blessed, Simon Peter, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. This is truth from on high. This isn't like some man-made theory. What you're saying is exactly true. And that confession that you are the one, the fulfillment, the one that God has promised, the one that every human being is longing for, that you say that that's who I am, that, my friend, Jesus says is a rock that I will build my church on and all the very gates of hell that you see right behind me will not be able to stand against that. It's powerful, powerful words. It's a play on words there, you know. Peter's name means rock. So he's saying, all right, Peter, Mr. Rock, your faith is rock solid in this moment. Now later he'd crumble a little bit too. But he's, that's why we know he's not talking about Peter. He's talking about what Peter said. 
And that truth that you got from God is the rock-solid truth I'm going to build a movement of followers on, a worldwide force so strong that even the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And it starts with Peter, and it goes to every other person since then, including today at all of our mountain campuses, people who are ready to stand and say these words, put them on the screen, say these words with me again as you believe them now with a little color from Caesarea Philippi in our spirits as we do. Are you ready? I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's my Lord. And he's my savior. I want to encourage you today to take an important journey of just a few inches, but it is the distance between heaven and hell for many people. The distance of a few inches is a big deal to an Olympian like Lindsey Vaughn, who was screaming down the hill in the Super G in the Olympics and did really well until the girl after her, Esther Ledecky, beat her by one one-hundredth of a second. Just a couple inches, she lost a medal. Or that garbage collector in Hartford County on Friday out in the wind and the tree branch fell and missed him by a couple of inches. Inches make a difference. I want to encourage you to take a journey of a few inches. And I'm talking about the difference between here and here. Because when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? It doesn't matter if the words just roll off your tongue because you know the right answer. Oh, he's the Christ, he's the Son of the living God. If, in fact, it's not engaged out of the center of your being, who you are, and you're reflecting a way that you say, I believe this, I own this. He's looking for more than intellectual assent. He's looking for more than the right answer on a test. Oh, yes, he's the Son of God. He's looking for someone who will say, I believe. I stake my life on this truth. I'm willing to anchor my world around Jesus Christ. I don't care what everyone else says. I don't care what the world says. Jesus I believe you are my fulfillment. I, it's a difference between saying, I, I, I believe that Jesus can forgive sin, and someone saying, I believe Jesus can forgive my sin. Who do you say that I am? He's looking for someone to make that journey of a few inches, to move it from here to here. I want to tell you about a guy who did that. Because he maps out a pathway for us to answer the question with more than our lips, but also our lives, to move it from here to here. And every single person in the hearing of my voice is invited to take the same steps this man took in the Bible because they map out for us a pathway to respond to God. If anyone wants to respond to God in the way that Peter did with more than words and moving from your head to your heart, there are are some steps here this guy will show us. So open your Bible to Acts chapter 16. I'm going to tell you about a guy. He's a government employee. But before we get to him, let me start with Paul and Silas. These are disciples of Jesus. They're running all over the place, so excited. Their faith has moved from here to here, and they're telling everyone about it. The officials don't like it. They say you're stirring up trouble. Lock them up. And so they get the nastiest jailer they can find to throw them in jail, put their legs in stocks, rough them up a little bit. They get the stuffings beat out of them, and they're sitting there, bloodied up, sitting in jail by this jailer, who's obviously no Andy Griffith, Mr. Nice Guy. And there they are in the inner cell with their legs in stocks in the middle of the night. And these knuckleheads start singing worship songs. Bloody noses and black eyes and they're singing praise to Jesus. The jailer is sleeping through the whole thing until about midnight when God gets his attention in a big way. Look at verse 26. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And all at once, the prison doors flew open. Uh Uh-oh. 
and everybody's chains came loose. This is not good. If you've ever been to a high-security prison, it's not really good for anybody when the doors fly open. Verse 27, the jailer woke up. He's in a panic because he knows, I've been roughing these guys up, abusing them and, and, and all of that, and now they're all free. He knows it's trouble for him. As soon as they get their hands on him, he's dead. And even if the prisoners don't kill him, in his day, if you were a, a jailer and the prisoners got free and escaped on your watch, you would be executed anyway. So he knows he's done. He grabs his sword. He's about ready to, to kill himself because the prisoners are escaping, but he knows he's got no escape, and he's going to do something to end it all while he feels like he's still in control. And here's a guy who I think like to feel like he's in control. Maybe we can relate to that. I mean, just a few hours earlier, he's strutting up and down the hall, the keys jangling on his, his little hip. He's in control. Everybody's locked in their place. He can talk to him and drink his coffee, do whatever he wants to do. And now, all of a sudden, there comes a moment in life where things shake loose, and all of the illusion of control that we thought we loved so much comes just breaking down. And all of a sudden, we ain't all we thought we were. And all, and we, all of a sudden, we start thinking about our life. Uh-oh, now I'm going to die. Is this what I really want my life to be like? I start thinking of my regrets. I start thinking of things I wish I could undo. I start thinking of all the things that I, the ways I'm not so much in control like I like to believe. And that's what this guy's doing right then and there. God got his attention. Sometimes God shakes things up a little bit and gets attention. Like we say around here, when God tries to get your attention... Pay attention. Maybe God's getting your attention right now. And it doesn't have to be a major shakeup, a divorce, or a death, or a job loss. It can be that. But right now, God wants to know, do you have your spiritual house in order? Because it could be go time. And so he feels so hopeless, and he's ready to fall on his sword. Maybe you felt that way too. But look what happens here, verse 28. Paul shouts at the guy, wait, 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 don't harm yourself. No, 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 we're all here. We're all here. I counted. We have Huey, Dewey, Mike, Fred, and George. We're all, we're all here. Don't go. No, 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 no. What? If someone pushed you around, abused you, and beat the stuffings out of you, stripped your clothes, and threw you in jail, locked the, the key, and then sneered at you, and he's now he's turning around saying he's going to kill himself, most of us would say, drive it in deep, buddy. But Paul and Silas are so changed by Jesus, it had moved their faith from here to here in such a way that they now instantly have compassion on this guy and want him to have the same joy in Christ they have. And that so shocks this guy. He's so taken with that, that if he could be shown compassion and grace like that, it's, always, it's like he's saying, I want what these guys have. Verse 29, the jailer called for lights. I've been calling for lights at my place for about three days, but <laughs> somehow BG&E showed up quicker for him. The jailer called for lights, and, and the lights come on in there, and, and he rushes in, and now he falls trembling before Paul and Silas. A minute earlier, the whole place is trembling. Now he's the one trembling, and this humbled man begins to get right with God. Here's where we begin to see some things that he does that every one of us are called to do. And the first thing is to tell the truth about your life. You just need to tell the truth about your life to be humble and honest before God. Come out behind all your positions and power and all of our masks and just say, as we stand stripped down, bare naked and before God of the universe, we need to ask the same humble question this guy asked. Verse 30, what must I do to be saved? You ask that question of God. Don't ask it of Justin Bieber or Oprah Winfrey. What must I do to be saved is a question you ask of God. And you do that with a humble, open spirit. Tell the truth about yourself that you're not all together and know that there's some elf things that all of us want to undo and humbly come before him. And then we begin to see 
what he does, the answers he's given in response. Let's look at the next few verses together. Verse 31 to 34. Here's the answer. What must you do to be saved? Well, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your household can do that. Anyone can. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him, more about Jesus, and to all the others in his house, and they just listened. They're like, tell me more. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them, and he washed their wounds. Imagine. And then immediately, he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his own house and set a meal before them, middle of the night. He was filled with joy. The guy who was ready to kill himself, filled with joy, because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. So you see the word believe, 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 and that's the same thing you need to do. The next step that every one of us needs to take, you want to live this out, is trust Christ with your whole life. Really trust him with your life. Again, it's movement beyond the bandwagon mentality, beyond the sort of everyone else is doing it mentality, but to where you have personal faith, where you trust Christ with your life, means you do what he says, you believe he's smart, you believe he knows what he's talking about, and you put your life in his hand. You study the teachings of Jesus, and you do your best to follow him. Trust Christ. My concern is at Mountain that there's so many people that love to come and there's exciting stories and all this amazing stuff happens that sometimes we can come along and some of you would confuse, you know, being in church with really being in Christ. That you would confuse being attracted to Jesus with being attached to Jesus. You need to trust Christ with your life in a personal way. No one can do that for you. To move from Jesus is the Savior of the world, I understand, to you saying he's my Lord and my Savior, like the greatest showman where you have to swing around and eventually let go and fly through and just put yourself in the hands of Jesus. Trust the Lord with your own life. That's what this guy did. He told the truth about his life. He trusted Christ in a personal way. And then he turned his life in a new direction. Whenever you come to Christ, there's change. There's a turn, and that's what we all need to do. It's what you need to do, to turn your life in the direction that God wants you to go. Do you know there's a turn that God is hoping you'll make, a change that you'll make in your life? So this isn't just lips. It's life. There's life change in Jesus. He brings us to a new place. The Bible calls it a, you can be a new creature, a new creation. Imagine. The Bible's word for turn is the word repent. It's all it means. To change. And every one of us needs to change. So on the very first day of the church, in Acts chapter 2, when the church was first forming, people heard all this stuff about Jesus. They were cut to the heart, and they said, what should we do? Peter's answer in verse 38, repent. Turn. Reflect that by being baptized. Everyone, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that jailer, think of all the changes and turning he had made. Here's a guy who one minute is inflicting wounds, and the next minute he's washing them. One, one minute he's like throwing gruel between the bars for them to eat. The next minute he's saying, come to my house and opening his refrigerator. One minute he's ready to kill himself. The next minute he's filled with joy. There's real change that happens. What kind of change is Jesus hoping to see in your life? 
turn your life in the direction of Jesus so you can have the fruit of, the, of those happy, good changes in your life. Don't complain that you don't have the changes until you turn your life in the direction. How is Jesus calling you to change? So you tell the truth about your life. You trust Christ with your life, and then you turn your, direct, your life in the direction of Jesus. And then we come to this next step. Take the plunge of baptism. Take the plunge of baptism. Look at verse 33. Isn't it interesting that right here in the middle, remember this whole episode started at midnight, and now it's got to be what, 2 a.m.? And it says immediately... This guy and all of his household decided, let's get baptized, and they did it right then. Not someday, not when things settle down, not when it's more convenient, not when I know more, not when, not when it's more convenient or I can have the relatives in town and have a big meal around. He just says, you know what, let's do it right now on the spot. It was that important, I guess, because that first outward act of obedience and commitment sets you on the path. And this is the pattern, by the way, that we see all through the New Testament. Now, um, we're going to talk about baptism just for a moment here. Um, and I'm aware that there are different understandings and traditions and church habits that are, are, are all practiced about baptism. But if we can just do our best for a moment to lay all that aside as best we can and simply look at the Bible itself. Look at the example of Jesus and the teaching of the earliest Christians as report, recorded on the pages of Scripture. That way, we, if we can see how they handled it and understood it and practiced it, we'll know we're at least all on solid ground or footing. And here's one thing we see, that every person in the scriptures who committed their life to Christ and joined that early church in the Bible, every one of them was baptized. In fact, there's no example in the Bible of a person who comes to Christ and joins the church who's not baptized. It was always there, part and parcel of the process of a person trusting Christ and turning their life in his direction. Nobody thought baptism saved you as if it was some magical thing like the water, you know, devoid of your repentance and faith somehow saved you. Nobody thought that. But they did think it was important, and every time a person comes to Christ, that's what they do. And so that's why today, I think, is going to be such a cool and special day at all of our campuses at Mountain, because I believe there are people who want to turn to Christ, receive him, and move forward, and who, just like we have been doing for 2,000 years, are going to say, I want to be made new, I want the old washed away, I want to make a new start, and so today, I'm going to be baptized, and we've got water ready for you, and uh, I'm going to jump in that water, and I invite you to jump in with me, and the campus pastors will be ready at all of our campuses as well. And I know some of you have not signed up. Um, that's okay. God has already signed you up. I'm going to take my microphone off so I won't electrocute you, and uh, we'll jump right in. Now, let's talk about just a few questions here, because uh, I think there are lots of questions. And one of the main questions people have sometimes is, why should I be baptized? The simplest, clearest answer is that Jesus commanded us to be baptized. That almost should be enough, you'd think. You know, the last thing Jesus said, Matthew 28, he said, all authority is given to me on heaven and earth, and therefore I've got one job for you, friends. Here it is. Go and make disciples of all people. How do you do that? Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Then Jesus himself was baptized in the Jordan River. And when he was, he came up out and he said, you know what? This is the right thing. I did this to fulfill all righteousness. It's the right thing to do. All of Jesus' disciples and all of the early church was baptized. This is why we're baptized. Not because we have to, but because we're asked to. And you know what? I would do, I would do it for Jesus if he asked me to. That ought to be enough. It's been the Christian practice for 2,000 years, going all the way back to Jesus himself. So that on the very first day of the church, 
when they asked Peter again, go back to Acts 2.38, what should we do? They didn't know anything. And his first answer for them was this, Acts 2.38, repent, turn your life in the direction of God, and be baptized, every one of you. That's what he said. There was a woman named Lydia. She gave her life to Christ. The Lord opened her heart to respond. What does she do? The first thing she does, she and her members of her household are baptized, and off she goes. She becomes an amazing Christian woman. In Acts 8, there was a man named Simon the sorcerer. He's practicing witchcraft and all this stuff. People were getting confused, but then they heard about Jesus. Verse 12 says they believed Philip and the truth that he told about Jesus, and so they were baptized, men and women. And then even the sorcerer himself, in verse 13, this guy who's all into witchcraft, even he believed and was baptized. So why be baptized? These are the reasons. Jesus commanded it. He did it. Everyone else did it in the New Testament. It's our example, too. Someone still might say, you know, I don't know. You're leaning so heavy on this. I don't know. Do I have to? And if that's where you're coming from, I would just, I would suggest to you gently as I know how to say, I think that might be the wrong question. You know, do I have to? It, it sounds like a person who might be kind of almost saying, well, what's the least I can do and still get in? You know, it's like, I know he had to hang on the cross and bled and died for me, but I don't know if I want to get wet. You know, it's just like, it's not the right question. Really, it's not. I mean, it's not circumcision. If he told me to stand on my head, I'd do that. It's baptism. Why not is the question. Why should I, who should be baptized? And how do I know if I'm ready? Can I remind us that baptism is not a sign of perfection? It's not a sign of maturity. It's a birth. It's meant to be a beginning. So you don't have to say, well, when I know more, when I get my life straightened out, if I learn a little more about the Bible, if I can stop sinning in a couple of major areas, I feel like I'll be ready. No, you're not understanding. Baptism is the birth. It's when you get started on the journey. It's the person who says, I need help. I'm ready to get born, and I want to start living for Jesus. There you go. If that's you and you're ready to trust Christ and move in God's direction, with his help, you should take the plunge. The people in Acts 2.38, they had heard one sermon about Jesus, probably not as long as the one you've just heard from me. And when they said, what should we do? The answer was, get in the water, take the plunge. This is one reason we don't practice infant baptism at Mountain, because we believe it is the believer who has to respond to Jesus, him or herself. Um, A baby can't turn their life in God's direction. A baby can't trust Christ. A baby can't say words that... Anyone can say for them, I believe. And so what we do is we have these amazing, amazing uh, baby dedication days, one coming up in June. And we pray for parents and grandparents and the whole family that we will just help do everything we can to make a world where we can raise these kids so they will grow up and want to say in their own voice, I believe, because no one can say it for them. I love Jesus, because no one can say it for them. I need him to forgive my sin, because no one can want that for them in a way that really works. And this is why you don't see infants baptized on the pages of Scripture, I think, because we want everyone to be able to say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the answer to the question, who do you say that I am? So what if I was baptized as an infant? Is that disrespectful if I'm baptized, uh, uh, you know, uh, today? It's like absolutely not. It affirms, it fulfills, and upholds what was intended for you. It's, it's 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 an affirmation of it. Hundreds and hundreds of people at Mountain Today have come and they've, they've been convicted and nudged by God as they've moved forward in their faith to say, to say to themselves or even to a priest or a pastor or a parent, thank you 
for what you meant for me when I was so young and you held me up in church that day years ago. Maybe you put water on my head or prayed over me, but thank you for the spiritual seeds you planted and for the prayers you prayed. And I want to echo that and affirm it and step into it and own it by my own declaration and confession of faith as I am baptized today. And your friends and family ought to be able to celebrate that move toward Jesus with you. Well, what if you came to faith a long time ago and you've been trying to live as a Christian, but you just never really thought that much about baptism or thought it was just a, an extra that wasn't that important? I would just say my coaching would be, you know, anytime we find something that maybe sounds like that's the way they did it in the Bible and Jesus commands it, and if you've not done it, whether you ought to just do it, whatever it is. So whether you receive Christ 10 minutes ago or 10 days ago or 10 years ago or 10 decades ago, you should just be baptized. What about this question? How should I be baptized? Well, um, the reason we bring in pools at all of our campuses and do that is because we love to do it in the way that we believe the New Testament uh, teaches and, and did it. You know, the word baptism itself is just the Greek word, baptizo. Put it on the screen here. You want to say it? Baptizo. Baptizo, yeah, baptizo. It sounds like a piece of bread with uh, tomato sauce, but it's not. It's, uh, it's just an everyday, ordinary word in that language. It doesn't, it doesn't have anything to do with religious word. It isn't. We call it a religious word now. It wasn't. It was just the word in everyday language. I mean, dunk. It means dunk, dip, plunge beneath water. So Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, dunking them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's all he said. That's why they did it that way. And Jesus goes down in the Jordan, comes up out. And, and I love the symbolism of it. I love the symbolism of immersion because when a person's immersed, their whole body goes under the water and all of us is devoted to Christ. All of us. Our eyes devoted to see the world differently because of Jesus. Our tongues are devoted to speak the words of Jesus and to speak in ways that Jesus guides us to. Our hands and our feet to do the things and to go the places that God calls us to do. Even our private parts dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine it. All of us. And Romans 6 says, don't you know when you were baptized, you were buried with Christ in his likeness of his death, only to be raised up to walk a new life. So we bury people to say, you're going to die one day, but don't worry, you won't stay dead. You too will rise with Christ. And I think that's why the early Christians baptized that way. It's why we like to baptize that way. So I invite you to be baptized that way today. You say, I don't know. I couldn't do it today. I mean, I, I haven't planned for this. I can say, oh, yes, you can. The jailer did it at midnight. You can do it this time, of the, this time of the day. There's no reason you can't. Well, I haven't had a baptism class yet. Well, this was your baptism class. <laughs> well, I don't have a towel. Well, I got a nice fluffy white one with your name on it. I'll give you three of them if you want it. I don't have a change of clothes. Yeah, your clothes will dry. It's 40 degrees out. Suck it up. I wore some light-colored clothing. I don't want to be too revealing in the water. Well, if you, we've got dark T-shirts. We'll give you one on the way in. Put it over the top. We'll give you another dry one to wear on the way out. It's really cool. You'll love it. Oh, I've got a silk dress. I can't get it wet. It's like if you really want to change clothes, we've got swimsuits of all sizes and robes and everything else. You can go change if you want to. Well, I've got to drive home, and I want to get my car seats wet. It's like, well, you'll be a little soggy for a few minutes. You'll be happy for all eternity. I'll give you as many plastic bags as you need. What about my stuff? Your cell phone in your wallet, hand it to someone next to you, trust them. Or we've got a whole system set up over here, a little envelope, and Guido's watching your stuff. No one's going no to get your stuff. We've got it all planned out. 
well, my family or someone special is not here to be a part of this. So it's a good thing this isn't between you and your family. It's between you and Jesus, so you need to just solve it right now. But it's cold, and the wind is blowing. And if anyone thinks it's too cold, I know it's a little chilly, but may I just ask you to watch a one-minute video of my Russian friends and how they get baptized? Watch the screen. Do you believe that Jesus is your Savior and Lord of your life? Yes, I do. Because you believe, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit. All right, so we've been properly shamed. I love, I love seeing baptisms because it's people giving their lives to Jesus, and the old is gone, and the washing of the water symbolizes all of the sin and the newness that comes as we rise again to walk in his new life. There's no pressure being put on anyone, but there's no reason to delay. If you're ready to answer the question, who do you say that I am, with more than your lips, but to do it with your life in the way that Christians have for 2,000 years, then today's your day. In about 60 seconds, I'm going to pray, and then we'll be singing. And all through the songs in the next few minutes, anyone's invited to come. You just make your way at the campuses over to the table. Here at Mountain Road, there's a table over here at this side here. You can find it at the other campuses. And as soon as I say amen, uh, with the clothes I'm wearing, I'm going to take my microphone off, my shoes off. I'm going to get in that water, and you're invited to do the very same thing. If you're ready to cowboy up, that's when you respond when I say amen. Four groups of people I want to talk to real quick. One... If you've already been baptized, you made the decision to be immersed, and you're ready to, you, you, you've already done that, can I just ask you to relive your baptism, to reappreciate it and thank God for it, re-experience it and renew your faith, and then pray like crazy that God would move in our midst. Second, if you're one of the helpers who's going to assist, you move as soon as I say amen if you haven't moved already. And third, if you're one of the people who signed up, there's only a handful at each service, but if you signed up, that's when you go, you lead the way. And then I'm going to ask that several others of us, that you would spontaneously come on in, the water's fine, we'll be waiting for you. You don't need to rush, but you don't need to delay. We'll be singing, and you come on up as we do. All right? We've got people with clipboards over there at the tables, and they'll take care of you. Okay? Let's pray, and then when I say amen, we'll move. Let's go. God, we trust you. Now we want to turn our lives to you, each and every one of us. We want to declare our faith in you as our Christ, our fulfillment, the son of the living, not dead, very alive, God, in our midst. And so we pray for you now to be in our midst and move our faith from our head to our heart so we will live it with more than our lips but our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Who's coming? If you would, would